Section 6 of The Scarlet Plague. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. The Scarlet Plague by Jack London. Section 6. I lived three weeks of infinite torment there in the chauffeur's camp, and then one day, tiring of me, or of what to him was my bad effect on Vesta, he told me that the year before, wandering through the Contra Costa hills to the Straits of Carquinez, across the straits he had seen smoke. This meant that there were still other human beings, and that for three weeks he had kept this inestimably precious information from me. I departed at once, with my dogs and horses, and journeyed across to the Contra Costa hills to the straits. I saw no smoke on the other side, but at Port Costa discovered a small steel barge in which I was able to embark my animals. Old canvas which I found served me for a sail, and a southerly breathe fanned me across the straits and up into the ruins of Vallejo. Here, on the outskirts of the city, I found evidences of a recently occupied camp. Many clamshells showed me why these humans had come to the shore of the bay. This was the Santa Rosa tribe, and I followed its tracks along the old railroad right-of-way across the salt marshes to Soma Valley. Here, at the old brickyard at Glen Ellen, I came upon the camp. There were eighteen souls all told. Two were old men, one of whom was Jones, a banker. The other was Harrison, a retired pawnbroker, who had taken for wife the matron of the state hospital for the insane at Napa. Of all the persons of the city of Napa, of all the other towns and villages in that rich and populous valley, she had been the only survivor. Next there were the three young men, Cardiff and Hale, who had been farmers, and Wainwright, a common day laborer. All three had found wives. To Hale, a crude, illiterate farmer, had fallen Isidore, the greatest prize next to Vesta, of the women who came through the plague. She was one of the world's most noted singers, and the plague had caught her at San Francisco. She has talked with me for hours at a time, telling me of her adventures, until at last, rescued by Hale in the Montecito Forest Reserve, there had remained nothing for her to do but become his wife. But Hale was a good fellow, in spite of his illiteracy. He had a keen sense of justice and right dealing, and she was far happier with him than was Vesta with the chauffeur. The wives of Cardiff and Wainwright were ordinary women, accustomed to toil with strong constitutions, just the type for the wild new life which they were compelled to live. In addition were two adult idiots from the feeble-minded home at Eldridge, and five or six young children, infants born after the formation of the Santa Rosa tribe. Also, there was Bertha. She was a good woman, Harelip, in spite of the sneers of your father. Her I took for wife. She was the mother of your father, Edwin, and of yours, Hoo-Hoo. And it was our daughter, Vera, who married your father, Harelip, your father, Sandow, who was the oldest son of Vesta Van Warden and the chauffeur. And so it was I became the nineteenth member of the Santa Rosa tribe. There were only two outsiders added after me. One was Mungerson, descended from the magnates, who wandered alone in the wilds of northern California for eight years before he came south and joined us. He it was who waited twelve years more before he married my daughter, Mary. The other was Johnson, the man who founded the Utah tribe. That was where he came from, Utah, a country that lies very far away from here, across the great deserts to the east. It was not until twenty-seven years after the plague that Johnson reached California. In all that Utah region he reported but three survivors, himself one, and all men. For many years these three men lived and hunted together, until at last, desperate fearing that with them the human race would perish utterly from the planet, they headed westward on the possibility of finding women survivors in California. 
Johnson alone came through the great desert, where his two companions died. He was forty-six years old when he joined us, and he married the fourth daughter of Isidore and Hale, and his eldest son married your aunt, Harelip, who was the third daughter of Vesta and the chauffeur. Johnson was a strong man with a will of his own, and it was because of this that he succeeded from the Santa Rosans and formed the Utah tribe at San Jose. It is a small tribe, there are only nine in it, but though he is dead, such was his influence and the strength of his breed that it will grow into a strong tribe and play a leading part in the recivilization of the planet. There are only two other tribes that we know of, the Los Angelitos and the Carmelitos. The latter started from one man and woman. He was called Lopez, and he was descended from the ancient Mexicans and was very black. He was a cowherd in the ranges beyond Carmel, and his wife was a maidservant in the great Del Monte Hotel. It was seven years before we first got in touch with the Los Angelitos. They have a good country down there, but it is too warm. I estimate the present population of the world at between 350 and 400, provided, of course, that there are no scattered little tribes elsewhere in the world. If there be such, we have not heard from them since Johnson crossed the desert from Utah. No word or sign has come from the east or anywhere else. The great world which I knew in my boyhood and early manhood is gone. It ceased to be. I am the last man who was alive in the days of the plague and who knows the wonders of that far-off time. We, who mastered the planet, its earth and sea and sky, and who were as very gods, now live in primitive savagery along the watercourses of this California country. But we are increasing rapidly. Your sister, Harelip, already has four children. We are increasing rapidly and making ready for a new climb toward civilization. In time, pressure of population will compel us to spread out, and a hundred generations from now we may expect our descendants to start across the Sierras, oozing slowly along, generation by generation, over the great continent to the colonization of the East, a new Aryan drift around the world. But it will be slow, very slow. We have so far to climb. We fell so hopelessly far. If only one physicist or chemist had survived... But it was not to be, and we have forgotten everything. The chauffeur started working in iron. He made the forge which we use to this day. But he was a lazy man, and when he died he took with him all he knew of metals and machinery. What was I to know of such things? I was a classical scholar, not a chemist. The other men who survived were not educated. Only two things did the chauffeur accomplish, the brewing of strong drink and the growing of tobacco. It was while he was drunk once that he killed Vesta. I firmly believe that he killed Vesta in a fit of drunken cruelty, though he always maintained that she fell into the lake and was drowned. And, my grandsons, let me warn you against the medicine men. They call themselves doctors, travestying what was once a noble profession. But in reality they are medicine men, devil-devil men, and they make for superstition and darkness. They are cheats and liars. But so debased and degraded are we that we believe their lies. They too will increase in numbers as we increase, and they will strive to rule us. Yet are they liars and charlatans. Look at young cross-eyes, posing as a doctor, selling charms against sickness, giving good hunting, exchanging promises of fair weather for good meat and skins, sending the death stick, performing a thousand abominations. Yet I say to you that when he says he can do these things, he lies. I, Professor Smith, Professor James Howard Smith, say that he lies. 
I have told him so to his teeth. Why has he not sent me the death stick? Because he knows that with me it is without avail. But you, Hare Lip, so deeply are you sunk in black superstition, that did you awake this night and find the death stick beside you, you would surely die. And you would die not because of the virtues in the stick, but because you are a savage with the dark and clouded mind of a savage. The doctors must be destroyed, and all that was lost must be discovered over again. Wherefore, earnestly, I repeat unto you certain things which you must remember to tell your children after you. You must tell them that when water is made hot by fire, there resides in it a wonderful thing called steam, which is stronger than ten thousand men, and which can do all of man's work for him. There are other very useful things. In the lightning flash resides a similarly strong servant of man, which was of old his slave, and which some day will be his slave again. Quite another thing is the alphabet. It is what enables me to know the meaning of fine markings, whereas you boys only know rude picture writing. In that dry cave on Telegraph Hill, where you see me often go when the tribe is down by the sea, I have stored many books. In them is great wisdom. Also with them I have placed a key to the alphabet, so that one who knows picture writing may also know print. Some day men will read again, and then, if no accident has befallen my cave, they will know that Professor James Howard Smith once lived and save for them the knowledge of the ancients. There is another little device that men inevitably will rediscover. It is called gunpowder. It was what enabled us to kill surely and at long distances. Certain things which are found in the ground, when combined in the right proportions, will make this gunpowder. What these things are I have forgotten, or else I never knew. But I wish I did know. Then would I make powder, and then would I certainly kill cross-eyes, and rid the land of superstition. After I am a man grown, I am going to give Cross-Eyes all the goats and meats and skins I can get, so that he'll teach me to be a doctor, Hoo-Hoo asserted. And when I know, I'll make everybody else sit up and take notice. They'll get down in the dirt to me, you bet. The old man nodded his head solemnly, and murmured, Strange it is to hear the vestiges and remnants of the complicated Aryan speech falling from the lips of a filthy little skin-clad savage. All the world is topsy-turvy, and it has been topsy-turvy ever since the plague. You won't make me sit up, Harelip boasted to the would-be medicine man. If I paid you for the sending of the death stick and it didn't work, I'd bust in your head. Understand you, hoo-hoo, you? I'm going to get Grancer to remember this here gunpowder stuff, Edwin said softly, and then I'll have you all on the run. You, Harelip, will do my fighting for me and get my meat for me. And you, hoo-hoo... We'll send a death stick for me and make everybody afraid. And if I catch Harelip trying to bust in your head, hoo-hoo, I'll fix him with that same gunpowder. Grancer ain't such a fool as you think, and I'm going to listen to him, and someday I'll be boss over the whole bunch of you. The old man shook his head sadly and said, The gunpowder will come. Nothing can stop it. The same old story over and over. Man will increase, and men will fight. The gunpowder will enable men to kill millions of men, and in this way only, by fire and blood, will a new civilization, in some remote day, be evolved. And of what profit will it be? Just as the old civilization passed, so will the new. It may take fifty thousand years to build, but it will pass. All things pass. Only remain cosmic force and matter, ever in flux, ever acting and reacting and realizing the eternal types. The priest the soldier, and the king. Out of the mouths of babes comes the wisdom of all the ages. 
Some will fight, some will rule, some will pray, and all the rest will toil and suffer sore, while on their bleeding carcasses is reared again, and yet again without end, the amazing beauty and surpassing wonder of the civilized state. It were just as well that I destroyed those cave-stored books. Whether they remain or perish, all their old truths will be discovered, their old lies lived and handed down. What is the profit? Harelip leaped to his feet, giving a quick glance at the pasturing goats and the afternoon sun. Gee, he muttered to Edwin, the old geezer gets more long-winded every day. Let's pull for camp. While the other two, aided by the dogs, assembled the goats and started them for the trail through the forest, Edwin stayed by the old man and guided him in the same direction. When they reached the old right-of-way, Edwin stopped suddenly and looked back. Harelip and Hoo-Hoo and the dogs and the goats passed on. Edwin was looking at a small herd of wild horses which had come down on the hard sand. There were at least twenty of them, young colts and yearlings and mares, led by a beautiful stallion which stood in the foam at the edge of the surf, with arched neck and bright wild eyes, sniffing the salt air from off the sea. What is it? Grancer queried. Horses, was the answer. First time I ever seen him on the beach. It's the mountain lions getting thicker and thicker and driving him down. The low sun shot red shafts of light, fan-shaped, up from a cloud-tumbled horizon. And close at hand, in the white waste of the shore-lashed waters, the sea lions, bellowing their old primeval chant, hauled up out of the sea on the black rocks, and fought and loved. Come on, Grancer, Edwin prompted. And the old man and the boy, skin-clad and barbaric, turned and went along the right-of-way into the forest in the wake of the goats. The End End of Section 6 End of The Scarlet Plague by Jack London Recorded by James Christopher, JX Christopher at Yahoo.com, July 2009